Aquinas explicitly says that the love of God is far uh, more important than the knowledge of God, even though both are absolutes, uh, and that the mind which knows and the heart or the will which desires uh, mutually influence each other. There's no simple priority of one over the other. Uh, like Augustine, Aquinas has those two facets in him, but he writes about them so clearly that people think he's a rationalist. Well, a rationalist is not somebody who's rational, but somebody who's only rational. But Aquinas has a mystical side to him, too. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of my favorite subjects is philosophy, but you know what? I've noticed something, something that bothers me, something that really gets under my skin, and it's this. We rarely engage medieval philosophy. We love to talk about modern philosophers. We love to talk about contemporary philosophy. But why is it that we seem to have a bit of historical amnesia when it comes to medieval philosophy? Well, let me be the first to say that is really a tragedy because, uh, well, medieval philosophy is actually quite rich. Not only are we missing out on so many uh, from, say, Augustine to Boethius, from Anselm to, uh, well, a great philosopher like Thomas Aquinas, uh, and but we're also missing out on really some of the explanation, or maybe I could call it the genesis for a shift in philosophy that I think, in part at least, explains why we end up in the modern period with some of the philosophical conundrums, well, that we do. How do we explain this shift? And if we ignore the shift, do we sentence ourselves just to an eternity in modernity? If we don't ever look at, say, a Thomas Aquinas and learn, sit at his feet, if we don't ever uh, examine ways that, say, a William of Ockham maybe shifted away in significant ways from the old way of philosophy, will we ever understand our own story and how we end up in modernity with some of the philosophical challenges that we know so well today? Well, it's hard to think of someone better to come on the Credo podcast to talk about why philosophy matters, and why something like medieval philosophy, which sounds so foreign to us today, why medieval philosophy matters so much for reason and faith today. Then, say someone like Peter Kreeft. Many of you know him. He is prolific from so many of the books he writes. Uh, He's written books like, well, I I can't help but mention his four volumes, Socrates' Children. Uh, These short introductions Uh, to the great philosophers of the Christian faith. But he's also written a slew of other books, such as C.S. Lewis for the Third Millennium. And one of my favorites is A Shorter Summa. You may also be interested in hearing about his textbook in Socratic Logic, uh, really a a a one-of-its-kind book that 
looks at Socratic logic in a way that few have done before. And I should also mention, he has written and is writing 10 books of dialogues, dialogues between Socrates and so many of the great philosophers before us. Peter Kreeft is a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Peter, it's great to have you on the Credo Podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, I think the first thing I, I have to say, because I know we brought this up uh, maybe briefly in a, in a previous podcast you and I did a, a long while back, is you've also written a book called I Surf, Therefore I Am. And I just have to ask you, are you still surfing? Is the Pope still praying? <laughs> <laughs> is, There's no such thing as an ex-surfer. <laughs> are you able... I know that uh, in the midst of uh, COVID, it's you know been so difficult for people to uh, sort of get out. But uh, I, I'm I can just imagine you out there on the surfboard, or or maybe just you know being a beach bum at some point, thinking philosophy, but also looking at those waves. Well, the problem is there haven't been many waves this summer. Uh, Lake Atlantic has been quite quiet, except at storm time. So I'm uh, eagerly anticipating the next hurricane that hits. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, for those listeners who um, want to get a little philosophy, but uh, also enjoy some surfing, maybe that's a book they, they want to pick up. You know, as I just said, Peter, uh, medieval philosophy, uh, I, I would say for so many, it's, well, it's just neglected. Um, and then if it's not neglected, it's often misunderstood or caricatured in the worst ways. You've been teaching for so many years now. Why is that? The very word medieval is a deliberate insult, invented mainly by Voltaire and the atheist philosophers around the French Revolution. They called the Middle Ages a thousand years without a bath. Uh, they hated it for a very simple reason. It was Christian. It was theological. When you look at some of the great minds, you think, I, I, and I know this person is one of your favorites, uh, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton didn't think that way. I mean, he he wrote actually an entire book, or maybe we could even call it a, a little bit of a biography on someone like Thomas Aquinas. Are, are you and Chesterton just kind of out on the island by yourself on this? Um, well, you know, there's a joke about uh, uh, a fog over uh, all of Europe, and the uh, the papers in, uh, in England said... Uh, um, continent is uh, uh, is lost, or continent is abandoned. Uh, depends on your perspective. Uh, yes, we are an island, but we're the we're the center island. Uh, wow. Chesterton's book on Thomas Aquinas makes the fundamental point that in almost all aspects of his philosophy, Aquinas sides with common sense. He's the master of common sense, mm. and that's a very uncommon quantity today. Very well, very well said. Uh, before we get into someone like Thomas Aquinas, let me just ask you uh, another question that, that perhaps draws on your teaching experience and, and just so much of your writing. Uh, when you are trying to maybe counter some of the characters about medieval philosophy or maybe even some of the suspicion that, that students have uh, towards medieval philosophy as something that's primitive or you know, inferior to modern philosophy— where do you go first? Is, is there a medieval philosopher or, an, or a certain period that you usually like to touch on to maybe 
deconstruct some of those caricatures? I like data. Uh, I like concrete uh, uh, pieces of evidence. So I give them Augustine and Aquinas and maybe Boethius. Uh, and you, you can't read Augustine without realizing that here is a master, not just of philosophy, but also of language. Mm. Uh, and you can't read Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy without realizing that uh, here is somebody who could be called an existentialist. He asks the great questions about the meaning of life and death and suffering. And you can't read Thomas Aquinas without realizing that he is simply one of the most intelligent human beings who ever lived. Mm. Now, you've mentioned Augustine. Um, and of course, we want to get to to Thomas Aquinas, but maybe that's a, an appropriate uh, point to take off this plane. How would you compare, contrast uh, someone like an Augustine with a Thomas Aquinas? Well, philosophically, you could uh, say Augustine baptized Plato and uh, Aquinas baptized Aristotle. Those are their main influences. Uh, but you could also see the difference psychologically. Um, Aquinas is a master of clarity. He's a map maker. He's like an eagle flying over the earth and, and spying out everything in it and laying everything else in perfect order. Uh, Augustine, on the contrary, is like a, a cave dweller. Uh, he loves to explore dark and deep mysteries. And his mind is, is kind of double-edged. There's the head there and there's the heart. In fact, medieval statues of Augustine uh, almost always uh, have him uh, extending both his hands out, and in one hand there's a burning heart, and in the other there's an open book. Mm. I think I actually have that exact uh, piece of art you're talking about on my my study wall, and it it's, captures it's one of thousands. Yes, yes, it captures so well. I think uh, what Augustine is all about, and uh, I like the way you've put that because I think Thomas Aquinas, in, in many ways, carries on Augustine's legacy. But like you mentioned, uh, he's his own person, his own mind, and, and he adds a certain clarity uh, that uh, is brilliant in, in, in its own way. Now, uh, maybe some of our listeners, someone like a Thomas Aquinas is just new to them. Uh, of course, his, his, he was prolific himself a lot like you, but uh, if you could point uh, some of our listeners to, to maybe just some of his major works, which ones would those be? Well, certainly his major work is the Summa Theologiae, usually mispronounced as Summa Theologica. It's about 4,000 pages long, uh, and almost nobody reads it from cover to cover, but uh, it's incredibly condensed. Uh, he says in a page what other theologians would take, oh, 30 or 40 pages to say mm. uh, without any extra words. And once you learn the basic meanings of his terms, he's very easy to read. Uh, what you see is what you get. Uh, the arguments are are clear and simple, uh, and, and I find Aquinas one of the easiest philosophers to read. Mm. Yeah, I'm so so glad you said that because that's been my experience as well. Uh, so often as I'm working my way through the Summa and returning to key passages that I that I just keep coming back to as so key in, in my own study and teaching. I just find him so clear, and uh, I, that's you know one of the things I tell students is learn learn his vocabulary, and once you do that, uh, it, it's almost as if the the plane will take off all of a sudden uh, before you even realize it. Now, now Thomas Aquinas uh, is, is sometimes caricatured. 
uh, as a as a rationalist, as someone who uh, elevated reason beyond what it should have been, and uh, didn't didn't pay much attention to scripture, and uh, saw faith as something that was really subservient or subordinate even to to his reason itself. Uh, my suspicion is that uh, you think that character is well a character and uh, badly. Uh, badly uh, argued. What what was actually Thomas's understanding of philosophy, but specifically reason itself? Well, first of all, that characterization is wrong. Uh, Aquinas explicitly says that the love of God is far uh, more important than the knowledge of God, even though both are absolutes, uh, and that the mind which knows and the heart or the will which desires uh, mutually influence each other. There's no simple priority of one over the other. Uh, Like Augustine, Aquinas has those two facets in him, but he writes about them so clearly that people think he's a rationalist. Well, a rationalist is not somebody who's rational, but somebody who's only rational. But Aquinas has a mystical side to him, too. Uh, Before he died, uh, he stopped writing, and uh, Summa is an unfinished work, and they asked him why. And uh, he said, "Because because compared with what I've seen, he had just had a mystical experience. Everything I have written seems to me to be no nothing more than straw. Mm. Uh, that's not a rationalist. Yeah. You know, at one point, um, he says, well, when he's describing philosophy, he, he describes it in, in the terms of a maid, uh, a type of servant to theology. I find that so telling because here is one of the great philosophical minds. He's also one of the great biblical exegetes. Uh, one of the great theological minds as well. And he seems to understand that this exercise of of philosophy is is actually serving a certain purpose. Uh, Like like you mentioned, this isn't just reason sort of off on its own. Um, Now, he he also also argues, and this was a a commonplace in the Middle Ages, that uh, uh, theology is higher than philosophy for a very simple reason. Uh, it's, it's data come from the divine mind and not just the human mind. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he says, the argument from human authority is the weakest of all arguments, but the argument from divine authority is the strongest of all arguments. Mm-hmm. That's not rational. Now, when he turns, uh, when Thomas turns to, say, metaphysics, uh, and to everything from, say, the existence of God uh, to the attributes or the perfections of God, he makes a certain argument, and it's not so much original with, with Thomas. Um, he's building off of those who have come before him, like in Augustine. When he starts describing God in terms of uh, pure being or pure act, what what is, how, how would you describe, I mean, just just briefly here, how would you describe his understanding of metaphysics itself? First of all, metaphysics uh, in pre-modern language does not mean the science of God or the science of the supernatural or that which goes beyond physics by leaving it behind. It goes beyond physics in its scope, its universality. It asks for the universal principles that are true of all being. Uh, like the law of identity or the law of non-contradiction or the law that every effect needs a cause. 
So uh, theology is simply the highest part of metaphysics, the, the science of the, the highest being. And when he says that God is pure being, he doesn't reduce God to an abstraction. Uh, he means that God is purely actual. He, he doesn't have some of his being in the past and some in the future and only a little bit in the present as we do. He has no past and no future. He does not change. He has no potential for change. He doesn't go from better to worse or from worse to better. He is simply infinitely good uh, actually uh, at, at a kind of eternal present. So instead of uh, the eternity of modernity, you get the eternity of God. Mm. Now, one thing that I've heard you say uh, again and again, and I, I think this is, is so key to understanding um, medieval metaphysics, but, but maybe just medieval philosophy at large, is you, you've said, well, uh, metaphysics for the medievals and epistemology, these, these two were not divorced from one another. In fact, whether it's epistemology or maybe even ethics, uh, they, they never, it, it would have been so strange for them to consider either one of those apart from metaphysics it, itself. Now, that, that sounds very odd, maybe, for us today, because we're so used to dividing up these disciplines and, and sometimes even thinking about one without considering the other. But let, since we're talking about someone like Thomas, why is it that for him, uh, epistemology, metaphysics, even ethics, why, why do all these go together, and, and what do they have to do with metaphysics itself? Well, that's a question that's really very simple to answer. Metaphysics is about what is or what is real. Uh, and one of the things that's real is a human being. So if a human being is made of matter only, uh, there are consequences for that. And if a human being is simply uh, an angel in disguise, a pure spirit, there are consequences for that. And if, if, if a human being is those two things without much of a connection, like a ghost plus a machine, there are consequences there. Uh, in fact, a human being is a body and a soul, which are related something like the meaning of a book and the words of a book. So there's a metaphysical basis for his philosophy of man or human nature. That, in turn, is the basis for his epistemology uh, and his ethics. If we're only material creatures, we know in a merely material and bodily way. If we're merely intellectual creatures, we know in a purely abstract and intellectual way. If we're both, we know in a way that's both, either separated into two watertight compartments or uh, together like the two blades of a scissors. Um, so epistemology flows from uh, anthropology and so does ethics because ethics is basically about the good for man, uh, human virtues and vices. And that depends upon what man is and is, is the subject of metaphysics. So really everything depends on metaphysics as the foundation for the building. What would Thomas say? I mean, what do you think he would say to, uh, so maybe certain modern philosophers or even contemporary philosophers who divorce ethics, for example. This isn't common today, right? <laughs> ethics from metaphysics. Well, first of all, that the tendency uh, today is uh, towards a kind of subjectivism and relativism, uh, very suspicious of uh, an objective universal set of moral absolutes. Uh, and if you don't have a metaphysics, you can't 
do that. You can't have a uh, an ethics that's based on universal principles and, and human nature. So there's a uh, there's a kind of impetus or, or desire to free ethics from its metaphysical foundation so you can have a, a create your own values uh, anything goes kind of ethics that's the temptation on the other hand if you base your ethics on metaphysics it's going to be very realistic it's going to be based on questions like what is man and what are his true needs mm. now we've been talking we're, we're talking more at, or less at 10,000 feet here uh, but maybe we can bring this down into the weeds just a little bit. Uh, let's take epistemology, for example. Uh, you mentioned uh, just a minute ago how when we were co- sort of comparing uh, an Augustine with uh, a Thomas Aquinas, how Augustine really takes up this challenge to, to understand uh, Plato, or maybe we could call it Platonism, in reference to Christianity. Uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas, you mentioned, is going to focus specifically on Aristotle and how Aristotle's thoughts can be uh, systematized, if we can say it that way, um, for the purpose of, of the Christian faith and theology in particular. That said, how exactly, how exactly does, does Thomas Aquinas do that? I, I think at one point um, you have sort of... Uh, labeled Thomas Aquinas a, a type of soft empiricist. Uh, why does that, why do you think that label captures his Aristotelianism? Well, I think Aquinas is basically an Augustinian. He quotes him more often than Aristotle, just as Aristotle is basically a Platonist. He was Plato's student. Uh, so I'd say that about 80 to 90% of Aristotle is in Plato. Uh, and most of Aquinas is in Augustine. He uses Aristotle's terminology rather than Plato's because it's richer and clearer. Uh, but the contrast between Aquinas and Augustine or between Aristotle and Plato is almost always overdone. Uh, Aristotle is basically a, a, a Plato revised, and Aquinas is basically Augustine updated and, and made more more full. Mm. So that's an excellent way to put it, because I think you are right. Uh, we tend to to contrast the maybe some of the differences between a Plato and an Aristotle, and then we we sort of transfer those into the Christian Christian tradition as well, and maybe make more of them than we should. Um, it, in light of that, uh, how when we think about the the High Middle Ages, um, we we are seeing here uh, a certain understanding of universals uh, and and how those uh, to use you know some of the more platonic language how ideas how those ideas are are so important then for the individual things in that that we even see in front of us um, I want to move in a minute to talk about William of Ockham and, and how there's a major shift that takes place but but maybe you could sort of lay the foundation and explain to our listeners, when you look at the the Middle Ages as a whole, what are some of these just basic uh, assumptions they have about, say, universals? Well, uh, I can answer that question and the previous one together. Uh, Augustine really puts Plato, Aristotle, and <clears throat> excuse me, Aquinas really puts Plato, Aristotle, and Augustine together. Uh, 
Plato's big idea is that there are ideas with a capital I, ideas that are not just human opinions, but objective truths, uh, and they stand by themselves. For instance, take justice. Uh, you find justice in some human beings and in some human acts and in some human laws. Uh, but what about justice itself? Those people and those actions and those laws have that quality. Uh, does the quality also exist, or does it exist only in the people and the laws and, and the actions? And Plato says the quality exists in itself eternally. Uh, and some Christian theologians say, well, he's right, but he just didn't know their address. That they are the ideas in the mind of God. Uh, and Aquinas agrees with that. In that sense, he's a Platonist, only he uh, adds God to Plato to, to give the Platonic ideas an address. Uh, Aristotle comes along and says, um, no, Plato is wrong. These ideas do not exist in themselves. If there is no just law or man or act, there's no justice. Uh, if all the green things in the universe cease to exist, the color green would cease to exist. So he finds these universal qualities in concrete individual things like green grass or just actions. And a Aquinas says, well, Aristotle is right there in what he says. That is where they are. Uh, God designed the world in accordance with these ideas, and these ideas, which Aristotle calls forms or qualities, uh, exist in things. You find justice not beyond human actions and institutions, but in them. And you find green not beyond green things, but in them, uh, in this world. Uh, so what Aquinas is doing is combining all the great philosophers before him, especially Plato, Aristotle, and Augustine. Uh, now, that's half of uh, the answer to your question. I've forgotten the other half of the question, so you'll have to remind me so I can give you the other half of the answer. Well, that's, that's all right, because I think what you are describing there um, really sets the scene. Uh, in, in the the high Middle Ages, uh, what we're seeing here is is exactly what you just said, this this basic belief, even a, a presupposition, if I can call it that, uh, that understands these, well, or, or maybe just assumes that these universals actually exist. Uh, now, when we transition uh, from, say, the 13th century to the 14th, 14th century, and someone like William of Ockham comes on the scene, all of a sudden, things change, and, and they start to change quickly and, and drastically, and, and, and I think I could say even in a very radical way. Now, now before we get into to William— In fact, the Middle, the middle Ages uh, is very aware of that change because mm. Occam and his disciples are always labeled the Via Moderna, the modern way, and all the others are, are labeled the Via Antiqua, uh, the antique way including both Plato and Aristotle. So what Occam does is to deny that there are any universal ideas or universal forms or universal principles at all. Mm. And this That's is called nominalism. He reduces them to names. We have universal names. We call things human beings or just actions or, or green colors. But, uh, uh, but in a sense, all adjectives are, are fictions. They don't exist outside the mind, according to Occam. Now, Peter, I've heard some say, uh, some philosophers out there will say, well, uh, nominalism is quite innocent. They'll say uh, it's, it's merely um, 
recognizing that these things are just in name only. What's what's the big deal? Uh, so so let me pose that question to you. Is, is this? I mean, it sounds like oh, an innocent you know uh, thing to deny, but does it act? Does it actually have significant, maybe even metaphysical consequences? There's hardly any idea in the history of philosophy that doesn't have more that has more consequences mm. than nominalism. If 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 universals are only names, then human nature, which is of course a universal, we 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 classify all human beings as human. Uh, that too is not an objective reality. Uh, and if there's no such thing as human nature, then what do we all have in common? Nothing but what we think we have in common or what we will to have in common or what we agree to have in common. Uh, so that leaves you open to things like racism uh, or uh, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, uh, or labeling your political enemies uh, the enemies of the human race. Uh, and it also gives you an ethics that's purely arbitrary and and voluntary you, you you create your own values because you don't find values embedded in the universal human nature you don't have a universal ethic anymore uh, except for the virtue of tolerance you have your values i have my values we'll just tolerate each other but but we can't really cooperate and that destroys society it destroys community augustine defined a city or a community as something united by a common love and if there's no common reality that we love, uh, we're not really in a community anymore. What a profound statement. You know, a lot of times when nominalism is discussed, um, it's not always discussed in the context of, say, Occam's razor. Can you take just a minute and, and for our listeners' sake, what, what is Occam's razor? I mean, on the one hand, it sounds like a, a very simple principle, but what does it have to do with this pretty radical nominalist shift? <laughs> Occam's razor, I think, is the motive for nominalism. Nominalism is a very negative philosophy, and it naturally leads to skepticism. Uh, so what would motivate somebody to, uh, to accept it? Well, the answer is that it makes all explanations simple by the principle of reductionism. You reduce the complex to the simple. You reduce the whole to the parts. Uh, the razor says, uh, if you have two explanations and one of them is simpler than the other, always accept the simpler one. So if you can reduce love to lust, if you can reduce thought to cerebral biochemistry, if you can reduce man to a clever ape, uh, that's the scientific explanation. Now, as a, a working principle for science, for uh, physical science, Occam's razor is very good. If, uh, if I'm a brain surgeon, I'm not going to think about the soul or think about the fact that uh, the, the brain I'm working on is my mother's brain. You're going to just look at the, the physical dimensions of that brain and say it's a machine and I've got to fix it. Uh, so uh, methodologically, science uh, is encouraged to be reductionist. But philosophically, to, to make a whole worldview out of that is disastrous. Mm. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't fool ourselves, right? I mean, William of Ockham is actually, as much as, as we might say he is uh, actually uh, putting uh, philosophy in the coffin, he is actually thinking about philosophy. It's not just science. And so these yes. are huge, these have huge ramifications. Yes. Those two enterprises, what we today call science and philosophy, uh, were clearly distinguished only in the 18th century. 
even Newton still called his great work of physics natural philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that telling? <laughs> well, I think I think that enables us to have a little bit of sympathy with these uh, thinkers that we're both disagreeing with. Uh, and only after you, 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 you clearly see where Occam's razor works and where it doesn't work yeah. can you give Occam his due and thoroughly reject him uh, elsewhere. Mm. Now, this brings us to a fascinating, uh, another fascinating and related discussion. Uh, if we're going to talk about science and theology, something that we, we distinguish so much today, but in, uh, say, the 14th century, that wasn't necessarily the case. Now, when we come to someone like William of Ockham, though, you've argued he not only distinguishes them, like maybe someone like uh, Duns Scotus before him, but he actually separates them. So let me ask you this. Uh, does William of Ockham divorce uh, theology and science? Or maybe we could expand this and say faith and reason. He certainly divorces faith and reason. He says, for instance, that uh, there is absolutely no reason to believe that the Ten Commandments are right. It's a pure matter of faith. Uh, he says that God himself is not rational. Uh, he is a pure will. And if he wanted to, he could have uh, instituted a law saying you must hate your neighbor and you must hate God, and that would be good. And this, what you're describing right here, I mean, we're... we're this is really at the heart of what we're talking about. Um, maybe earlier figures, it might be a bit anachronistic, uh, or maybe we're overdoing it to say they're just pure voluntarists. But when we come to William of Ockham, we really see it rise to the surface. What, well, what you is, do have an earlier figure, but not in Christian philosophy. It's in Muslim philosophy. His name is uh, Al-Ashari. And the Asherites, which became the main line, not the only line, but the main line in Muslim philosophy, were pure voluntarists. He said, God is simply power and will, not reason. Great point. So, so when William of Ockham starts to introduce this line of thought in Christian theology, why is this so radical where he's elevating, say, uh, the will over, say, intellect? Because the will is always of something particular, whereas the intellect is always of something universal. So this goes along with his nominalism. It fits his nominalism. This is really one of the defining uh, marks, as, as you know, not only philosophers but historians have pointed out. This is really one of the defining marks of the Via Moderna. It, I think it's so defining. It really does put the Via Moderna in, in contrast to the older ways of, of doing philosophy. Now, you mentioned, Peter, um, a, a little while back that when we, we put all of this together— uh, it, it tends to just lead right to a type of skepticism. That may seem to some like uh, a pretty serious charge, but why do you think there's actually a lot of credibility to it? Well, it's, it's only reasonable. Uh, let's look at a basic principle of logic. Um, the only way to get certainty in logic is, is a deductive argument, not an inductive argument. Induction gives you only probability. Uh, you 
look at a, a number of instances and you say, well, it's probably true that this is true in all cases. But uh, you need a deductive argument to attain certainty. For instance, all men are mortal. That's a universal. And I am a man, therefore I am mortal. Well, you get that conclusion demonstrated with certainty by that deductive argument. Well, you can't have a deductive argument without a universal principle. You can't say, I am mortal and, uh, uh, and, and you are mortal, therefore uh, Joe is mortal. You have to have a universal principle to deduce a particular conclusion from it. And if universal principles are only names and not realities, well, that almost directly leads to skepticism. Now, that, that claim that it leads to skepticism... Uh, if there really is this shift taking place uh, towards the, in the 14th century, I mean, here we're right on the, the really the middle of the 14th century by the time someone like uh, William of Ockham dies. How does that, or does it, open the door to this type of skepticism? Does that open the door to what we see next in modernity? And, and if so, with, with whom? Well, by the time you get to the early 17th century with Descartes, almost all the intelligent philosophers are skeptics. The classic case is Montaigne, probably the most brilliant man of the time. And Descartes faced a situation in which philosophy had largely retreated into skepticism. And he said, we have to have an answer to that. And his radical answer is basically to go back to Plato uh, and to be a rationalist and to uh, demand absolute certainty about the universals. Uh, whether he succeeded or not uh, is not my problem. My, my problem is with his problem. The problem that he saw was that the the more intelligent you were, once you begin with alchemist principles, the more clearly you see that skepticism is the only conclusion. And if that's unlivable, you have to go back and, and, and do something else. And he tried to do something else, and it failed. Uh, empiricism, I think, pretty much refuted his rationalism. And then you get David Hume, which is a, uh, a modern version of Occam. Uh, and he's probably the greatest and completest skeptic in the history of philosophy. Uh, he denied even the principle of causality. And mm -hmm. that imperils not only theology, but even physical science. Let's talk about Hume for just a moment. Um, when we look at someone like Hume and see this skepticism sort of in full bloom, um, and it, it's it's clearly affecting then, uh, say, how he views arguments for the existence of God. Um, and he's going to be, I mean, as soon as you deny something like causality, that's going to put Hume in total contrast to, say, the Thomistic tradition, in which causality, it, it, anyone who's read Thomas Aquinas will realize very quickly, oh, causality is actually central to to so much of his argument. So if Hume goes this direction, um, and if we're seeing sort of precursors in someone like William of Ockham where skepticism is now being entertained, is it too much to say that, well, Hume, and, and perhaps others, maybe there's others you can think of, uh, Hume is, is actually representing a type of modernity that we begin to see at the very end of the Middle Ages, but... Um, one that really uh, sets the scene and is assumed by many contemporary philosophers? Yes, yes. 
let me read a quote from the Thomas philosopher Jacques Maritain. Uh, this is especially relevant to anybody who is suspicious of Thomas Aquinas for being supposedly too rationalistic. I think the great crisis of almost all of modern philosophy is a crisis of reason. Uh, that's what goes back to, uh, to Occam's nominalism and denial of the universals that are a, a foundation for reason's ability to, uh, to know universal truth. He says, the disease afflicting the modern world is above all a disease of the intellect. The order between the intellect and its object was shattered. We may have difficulty in realizing the frightful significance of these few abstract words, the tremendous upheaval, the inevitable catastrophe to which they point. The intellect, that prodigy of light and life, that glory and supreme perfection of created nature through which we become spiritually all things, all things that are knowable are knowable by the intellect, that through which we shall someday possess our supernatural beatitude, uh, Christ himself says, uh, this is eternal life, to know God. Uh, and from which here on earth all our acts, insofar as they are human acts, proceed. If an act is not known or, or, or it's not rational, it's not human. That on which the rectitude of all that we do depends. Can we conceive how ruinous for man is the disturbance of that life, which is the participation in the divine light? Uh, that's the crisis of our time. It's not an abstract question. It's a question that imperils the survival of Western civilization. Mm. And it's not limited to Hume, is it? Who would be some others that that are also adding to this crisis? Well, many existentialists, especially Nietzsche, uh, insist that uh, uh, there is no essence. There is just existence. Uh, there, there is not even any truth. He says the will to truth is, is a superstition because truth is a universal. Uh, Kant tried to save the intellect by subjectivizing it, by saying that uh, we don't know objective reality by it, but it's necessary and uh, you, you have to use it. And we, we project our mind upon things like when we're doing science, we're really doing art. We're, we're creating the world in the act of knowing it. Well, that doesn't save the mind because the mind wants to know what's really there. It doesn't want to know simply how I put order into things. Um, pragmatism would be another example to say that a thing is uh, is not knowable in its being, but only in its use. Uh, utilitarianism is an ethic that depends upon simply uh, uh, the will wanting to use a thing, wanting to attain happiness or pleasure rather than what a thing is. So the consequences are in, in, in all the major schools of modern philosophy. Mm. Now, uh, those who are listening uh, to this entire episode, maybe thinking, well, goodness, uh, in light of modernity, um, have we completely, are there any uh, Thomistic philosophers left? Uh, what is there? So let me throw that question back at you. I mean, when you look at the contemporary scene, in light of so much uh, of the, the collateral damage from modernity, is uh, Thomas Aquinas and, and his insights, um, is this completely lost? Or is has Occam just taken over? Or, or are there some lights out there? 
There are lights out there. Many of them are Thomists. In fact, Thomism is uh, the one school of philosophy that's still very much alive and thriving. It's a minority view, uh, mainly in Catholic universities, but uh, but it's a strong view, and it has proved itself capable of uh, incorporating many of the positive insights of, of modern philosophy, like personalism, the intrinsic value of the person. Uh, and even beyond Thomism, I think common sense still is somewhat alive. It's uh, maybe on its deathbed, but it's still breathing uh, among most philosophers. Most philosophers don't want to be total skeptics, except the deconstructionists. They enjoy it. They they keep jerking our chain and, and laughing at us. I think it's delayed adolescence. <laughs> well, I think you might have a thing or two to say about that. Uh, but uh, would you say just in terms to point our listeners to some some specific names, um, maybe someone like Gilson would be an example. Gilson is a brilliant uh, historian of, of Thomas and of medieval philosophy. Uh, he's harder to read than Thomas, but he's he's very good. <laughs> By the way, when I when I first started studying Thomism, I had difficulty because I was interpreting Thomas through Thomists. And then um, my best teacher, Father Norris Clark at Fordham University, told him, "No, you do the opposite. You interpret Thomists through Thomas, oh. and that works." So uh, just read Thomas himself. By the way, Father Norris Clark is a a great Thomist philosopher and also a personalist, and has written a wonderful little book called Person and Being, which is a, a plea to uh, to join modern personalism with uh, medieval Thomism, and I think it works very well. Well, it's encouraging to hear. Uh, I think that uh, your advice there uh, really sums up and concludes this episode so well. Um, go out and read Thomas yourself. Uh, maybe uh, pick up his Summa. Uh, Peter Kreeft here has uh, even put together a Summa of the Summa to try to help you do just that, uh, getting at some of the, the uh, essence of the Summa and some of its most important paragraphs and uh, pages. Uh, but I think that our listeners will discover that, well, once you've read you read Thomas, you'll begin to notice such a massive contrast, maybe even a divide between Thomas and what you are seeing by many modern philosophers. And uh, irrespective of whatever uh, Christian tradition you are part of, you may even start to, to feel that, well, I actually have a friend in Thomas, uh, even if you disagree with him on certain things. On the whole, what he's presenting, his his Christian understanding of, of God and the world is so drastically different than modernity that I think you will actually find it refreshing. Peter, it's always a joy to bring you on uh, the Creative Podcast. Uh, I respect you in so many ways, uh, your philosophical mind, but I also love your sense of humor. Thank you for coming on the Creative Podcast once more. You're very welcome. God bless you and your work. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.